Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Bree Kimmel, founder of Worklife Ventures. Worklife is the first fund designed for builders, creators, and individual contributors. Some of their investments include Clubhouse, Hopin, and Italic. We focus this conversation on how having fun is actually serious business, the ins and outs of the creator economy, and how to evaluate companies where a celebrity is a co-founder. Without further ado, here's Bree. Bree, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for being here. This is going to be a lot of fun. I wanted to start from the very beginning, at least from your investment career. What inspired you to start Worklife VC? How did that come together? And what compelled you to become an investor? Because I know you were an operator for some time. Yeah, great question. So from the beginning, the vision for work life has been to build a community. Our definition of community is something that extends beyond just traditional tech circles. So I wanted to collaborate with artists and freelancers and creators and solo founders, which, you know, a lot of people that follow me on Twitter or have watched my journey as an investor has essentially come from my interest in the low-code, no-code space and in the broader creator economy. And so the idea was to build a community where we could collectively build and back new tools that make entrepreneurship possible for anyone. And so I truly believe that this era that we've entered into is a period where anyone can be a founder. Maybe it's a podcast. You're a great example of this. Maybe it's an e-commerce store. Maybe it's a self-taught craft that you've learned on evenings and weekends. I saw as an operator um, just how the world was changing really quickly. I go back to the Zendesk culture a lot because I think it's a really great example of a company that really encouraged creativity. So on my team, we had an illustrator that was getting featured in The New Yorker based on evenings and weekends work. There was someone on my team that was teaching improv and teaching stand-up comedy on evenings and weekends. And I felt that Zendesk really cultivated this creativity where you can work in software, you can work in tech, you know, you can have a full-time job. But what really, you know, brought a lot of exciting energy and, you know, very long-term friendships were these hobbies that people had and these passions that people were pursuing outside of work. And so I thought to myself, you know, to what extent is this a signal of what's to come? Could we actually create these tools and also, you know, find great founders who are already passionate about the space and really help them build and scale these software companies that ultimately create a faster path to entrepreneurship? I love that. I love that. Thanks so much for explaining about the reasons why, how work life came together. And and I love that you bring up community. I know communities maybe a bit of a buzzword now. It seems like everyone's building a community. But what were maybe some of the nuances in your journey that you learned to build maybe a successful community or uh, different strategies that you used in order to really build this kind of very lively and engaged creative community that you have? 
What's interesting is there's been this evolution where I think historically, if you look at even how people consume content on social media and how people initially thought about building an audience, a lot of these topics that people talk about today are relatively new. I find, you know, the work-life perspective on this and the way that I've thought about it is traditionally in investor speak, we've talked about the consumerization of enterprise or we've talked about software, how it there's been this evolution where it's no longer sold top down. Like there's not one person at the top that's making the decision for an entire company or for a specific team. And that we have essentially focused very heavily on the business model, but we've forgotten about the people and the reason why this is happening. I find that today we are seeing that essentially any tool that you're using at work or any, if you're building software, any team that you're selling to, they typically benefit from a community. This is something that we saw at Zendesk where customer support, they're not high on the totem pole um, at tech companies. I think a lot of times like companies don't want to talk about this, but it's typically product and engineering are these like prestigious roles inside of a tech company. And then oftentimes customer support, you know, feels like they're this team that's sometimes overseas, it's sometimes outsourced, like it was like not the most obvious place to build a community. But one thing that Zendesk did really well was to develop the Support Leadership Forum, which was an ongoing event that was really just bringing together people that had the same job. That then turned into these like large-scale community events where now you see celebrities like Mindy Kaling kicking off like the Zendesk Annual Conference, which talks about customer experience. It talks about how Peloton thinks about customer experience. It brings together really interesting people to have a conversation. And so an insight that I had as I was thinking about what sort of contribution can I make to the startup ecosystem and how do I want to truly be helpful to companies as a busy operator? Because realistically, I know that there's a lot of appetite to become an angel investor. Right now, we're seeing a lot of people raise their own VC funds and do this on the side. Behind the scenes, it's actually really hard to find time to meet founders. If you're doing it on evenings and weekends, it's very hard to find ways to be helpful once your portfolio starts to get bigger and bigger. And so an insight that I had is I um, pulled together initially a group of friends. Now we've expanded the community even further of operators that were on their second or third company, ones that really had this reputable playbook that make them highly sought after. And there's reasons why they can jump from cool company to cool company. And so we'd get together and do a go-to-market bootcamp once a quarter. Initially started out where it was maybe 30 to 40 founders. Now that we're doing over Zoom, that's a lot more effective. And we're actually doing it on a weekly basis, which is awesome because it's like, I'm very pro remote work and I'm I'm very pro building a global community because that's directionally how tech is evolving. It's not just limited to San Francisco anymore. It's now global. And so doing these weekly community conversations have been awesome. It's a great way for founders and first hires to learn from people who've done it not once or twice. Many of them are on their third or fourth startup. And so they have a lot of insights and secrets to share from the companies that they've built and scaled. And so naturally, what's been interesting with, you know, sort of the evolution of work life is like I started out purely focused on sort of these repeat operators, sharing their secrets, helping companies build and scale their programs. I thought about it and what's missing in the ecosystem today is I find that there's no shortage of great content or communities for founders. 
there seems to be a lot of white space and there's not a lot of information that really makes tech more approachable and more approachable for people who own local small businesses, like who are now using a lot of technology. You know, you think about the average restaurant or the store down the street or Shopify stores and all of these, like this emerging ecosystem of all types of entrepreneurs. What was missing is that there was not a lot of information that sort of sits at this intersection of tech and approachable tech for these new types of founders. And so that's where a lot of the work-life community events today actually invite freelancers. We've we've done a roundtable discussion with therapists. We've done one with personal trainers. Like we also want to start introducing other classes of work. And that's really helpful for companies that are building in the space because we can actually bring the community and we can bring a network and drive a really thoughtful discussion and then invite companies that we've invested in that are essentially building for these new classes of work. I love that. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing. I mean, it reminds me of my conversation that I had with Robin Lee at GGV, where she was saying how one of the things that she was really focused on is how to bring some of these small businesses online and also thinking about two creators as small businesses. And so bringing these people online uh, to have access to these markets or markets that aren't localized. What's interesting is I'm, what I'm seeing today is that there are many friends that are leaving well-paying tech jobs to pursue something that they truly care about. Maybe they are teaming up with someone and they're starting a food truck. You know, maybe they've transitioned out of building software and now they're building something that's like a physical good that they plan to sell online. Like there's a lot of interesting changes that are happening right now. And I really like that approach where we're seeing systems level thinkers, so people that have been at multiple different startups, now starting just different types of businesses. And I think this is going to have a real impact on the economy. I think about this a lot. I I invested in a company called CashDrop, and CashDrop is mobile-friendly payments, super simple solution. They're essentially solving what today a lot of people are using Venmo for. Like if you go to a farmer's market, if you go to a food truck, oftentimes you can pay in Venmo. What they're doing is they're actually making this a lot easier to actually build a storefront. I mean, this is better from a reporting standpoint for their back office. It's also better from a tax standpoint. And so I think we'll continue to see this sort of intersection of tech and like tech meets the real world. And I think COVID has really accelerated this where people are moving to new cities. You know, people are reevaluating what they truly want to work on. And I think remote work has really accelerated that path where when you're at home, a lot of people are building on evenings and weekends and doing things that are maybe related to tech or, you know, can be tech enabled, but they're choosing to do very different things. Thinking about like the underlying infrastructure that might have to empower a creator, what's still missing in the technology infrastructure in order to have these passions and uh, to to actually be able to monetize them and to actually make them truly valuable where you can actually leave your full-time job and actually pursue it? An interesting stat is just to to demonstrate the scale. Um, Today, we're actually seeing the impact of a year at home. So more small businesses have been started last quarter than any other quarter in U.S. history. So there are a lot of people starting small businesses. You know, if you were to ask me at the start of the pandemic, what did I expect would happen or what would happen at the end of these 12 months? My initial take was, I bet people will seek shelter and go to a big company because they want a stable salary, because they want, you know, great benefits because they want a little bit more work-life balance, because starting your own business, it has a lot of upfront costs and also costs associated with just like the general time it takes to to get something off the ground. 
it's been interesting to see that that I was wrong. And it was great to see that so many people have started all types of businesses and these businesses are really thriving during the pandemic. When I think about what that means for new opportunities, I do think that there are still a lot of bottlenecks for starting something. And so I've made a couple of investments that are very progressive benefits plans for freelancers and for creators. You know, one thing that holds people back or or keeps them, I don't want to say trapped at big companies, but, you know, working to pay the bills and maybe doing something that's not directly related to, you know, their passions and interests is health insurance. You know, once we solve the health insurance problem, You know, I think there's a lot of new solutions and very smart people that are thinking about sort of the back office of starting a business as well. Like, I think there was a whole wave of, you know, sort of Intuit and a lot of software companies that have made TurboTax is another example, companies that have made it pretty easy for small businesses to think about their back office and to do a better job from an accounting standpoint or getting ready for tax season. And there's a number of companies that have been built in this space. I also find that, you know, many of them, I have this theory that, you know, once a company is 10 years old, it's ripe for disruption. And so we are starting to see like sort of the unbundling of a lot of these applications. Like I see a lot of teams that are thinking about what's the newer version of bill.com, what's the newer version of Docsend, what's the newer version and the more um, solo founder or creator friendly version of something like Intuit and some of these like larger, more comprehensive platforms that have essentially moved up market and are selling to, to medium to large size teams. And so that creates room for something that's lightweight and more creator friendly. That makes a lot of sense in terms of the innovation that I think we're going to expect to see or already starting to see of some of these legacy uh, businesses that were maybe at one time serving very small businesses, but now have moved a lot markets. There's a lot more opportunity there. What are some nuances in the creator economy that maybe outsiders might not think about or quite understand? Initially, a lot of people associated with, you know, creator with a content creator likely on YouTube or on Instagram. Back in 2013, I was the head of social at Expedia and worked directly with full-time travel bloggers and micro-influencers and more specifically experts in up-and-coming neighborhoods. So that included chefs and fashion designers and all types of creators who were essentially monetizing their audience and partnering with big brands like Expedia to pay the bills. I, you know, fast forward today, it's so awesome to see that many creators have cut out the middleman and they're not dependent on some of these large branded partnerships because they're able to monetize in new ways. Today, I see kids designing their own video games. You know, I invested in a company called Primer, which is modern education, primarily online or mostly online and through a really interesting modern education where It's more about, you know, identifying your child's interests and then aligning education to fit into the things that they care about already. I think that really helps with that, you know, keeping kids engaged, especially when they're fully remote and and also on Zoom right now. You know, we see soul cycle instructors that are launching their own direct to consumer lines. We see developers who are streaming on Twitch and blogging and creating content. So I think the definition of creator is now quite broad. Because it it speaks to this, I would say, this innate trait that all of us have where it's essentially like when you are creating something, like there's a very tangible output. I feel like one thing that's missing from, historically been missing from corporate culture is there are 
a lot of people that spend the majority of their week in meetings. And so if you're sitting in a meeting all day, like you're not really actively contributing and you're not really fulfilling this desire to build something and to be very proud of your work. I think the output of creating something is, is feeling accomplished and very proud of the thing that you've built. And so I think definitionally, you know, the creator economy can mean a lot of things to different people. I also think that there is, uh, to be successful, if you're building a small business, you almost have to be a creator. I've talked to a lot of friends who are, are chefs and own restaurants in different cities you know, across America, and they had a really hard year. And so for many of them that are thinking with this creator mindset, they've accelerated their time to write a cookbook. They've launched in-home kits, which are super cool. And I get really excited about this because we're essentially turning the restaurant experience into in-home entertainment where you can have friends over, you can cook with your partner, you can, you know, teach your kids how to cook, but you're using like spices and interesting ingredients from some of the, you know, the world's most renowned chefs. So I think that a lot of people are now thinking with this like creator perspective and it's really helpful for them to build their brand, but it's also a very tangible way for you to be proud of the work that you're doing. No, totally. And I mean, it seems like also, especially with that chef example, that more and more creators are just going to be releasing more and more content. That content is becoming even more crucial. And also when you see creators now launching consumer brands, right, which I think is fascinating and becoming celebrities of themselves and become people that have influence. Do you think that this is now the future of launching consumer product brands? That's a great question. I mean, I would say there's a couple of things that are happening. We are seeing, as I mentioned earlier, the barrier to start something has come down significantly. And this also applies to physical goods, which I get super excited about. I think historically, you know, if you wanted to start an e-commerce company, you had to find manufacturers and suppliers. And it, the whole experience was very fragmented and, and limited to a handful of people. Historically, the last wave of great direct consumer brands, they essentially cut out a lot of the middlemen and they were vertically integrated, like Away, Warby Parker, all of you great, like first wave of direct consumer brands went out and raised venture capital. Like they were their venture backed startups. What I'm seeing today is there are a lot of platforms that essentially do all of that work for you. And so your only job is to bring your audience, which creates a whole new type of founder. You know, I was an early investor in a company called Pietra. They see everything from DJs to soul cycle instructors to anyone that has an audience is able to launch their own direct-to-consumer brand in a matter of weeks. And so that can be really um, life-changing outcomes for someone that's, you know, soul cycle instructing. You have a limited number of shifts per week. It is an hourly rate. If you launch your own merch line, if you launch your own fitness company, if you're launching branded weights and something that's very much aligned to your brand, like that can be life-changing and it's twofold. I mean, it's a new revenue stream for you. It's also a great way to scale your brand because, you know, when something, when a package arrives at the door, our natural state is to Instagram it and to, you know, tell our friends about it. And so it really helps to generate some virality as well. And so I get super excited about those business models. When I think about, you know, celebrities founding companies, this is something that's 
happened for a while. I think historically, you know, celebrities would have more and uh, sign more exclusive deals with certain existing brands. I think that can be a lot more challenging. I think it's it's limiting in terms of your own creativity because usually the brand will come to you with the products that they plan to launch. It's not as collaborative. It takes a little bit longer to get off the ground because there's multiple layers of approval. And so some of the new celebrity founded companies are really interesting to see because they can have full creative control over the product. And ultimately, you know, I know that the talent agencies are investing a lot in incubating many of these products. And so it's a nice way to really engage with your fans in a different way. It's also a tangible way for you to really scale a lot of your efforts, which I feel like today, I mean, I think about this a lot for YouTubers as well, where it's like, there's so much content online and there's so many things that are happening in the media headlines that sending something to someone's house is actually a really nice way to build a relationship. And it is something that's quite Instagrammable and it, it achieves both the goal of like building a relationship with your fans and also staying relevant because that content is being shared broadly. Do you ever find that with celebrity founded or rather people that have influence founded businesses that since they already have an an audience that, hey, we don't need to focus as much on product innovation? Interesting question. I find with a lot of the celebrity-driven brands or celebrity-founded brands, they're oftentimes like affordable from a price point. I also find that they're the types of products that maybe people would use every day. I think cosmetics is one that's like fairly high margin. It makes sense where it's aspirational if it's coming from your favorite celebrity. It's also something that you have the frequency. It's like something that you're likely using every day. And so that's a great way to maybe experiment with a new product. I think a, maybe a counterpoint to that or, or something that is more of a recent example is I think Dispo is actually a great example. Dobrik is an amazing content creator. He's someone that has a, like, existing distribution baked into the model. And the founding team has done such an amazing job of really leveraging his brand in the early days and his brand, which I would say his involvement would ultimately have diminishing returns anyway. And so, you know, for, for those of you that don't know, Doberg is no longer involved with the company. The founding team is incredibly strong group of engineers and designers. And, you know, they've continued to build the business without the the celebrity co-founder is an interesting case in point where I think Dobrik's brand was helpful for launch. The majority of the value that he would deliver has already happened. And so his exit, it's less important than maybe some people would realize. Um, I think headlines are easily forgotten and we've entered a period where future users of Dispo will have less of an association with Dobrik but he was very helpful as far as getting it off the ground and building hype and momentum where a lot of people signed up for the early beta. And I appreciate you bringing up uh, Dispo. What are maybe some lessons learned from that if you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about possibly partnering with a celebrity? Yeah, it's one of these things where, you know, at the end of the day, celebrities are people and people come with a lot of baggage. Um, they come with a lot of you know, life experience or an existing reputation, or in this case, unfortunate news that came out later. And that's news that would not have been readily um, available or easy to discover by early investors or early hires. When things go wrong um, at a startup, 
The great thing about Dispo is they have a strong founding team that can continue building the company. They have supportive investors. I think this is an amazing case study for Alexis Ohanian and, and his team because they've continued to be helpful. You know, they did what was right and they issued a statement and, and said that, you know, they were not aligned with Dobrik's behavior and it was essentially the polar opposite of the values that they hold as a firm. And so once that statement was released, they didn't part ways entirely and they didn't leave the team stranded. You know, as an investor, your reputation is built when things are hard. It's very easy to be um, very vocal and excited about companies that are doing well, but the best investors are ones that operate behind the scenes and continue to be helpful when things are really hard. And I think Alexis has done that really well. I mean, the interesting thing for celebrity founded brands is the Dispo example. We now see what can happen when things go wrong. So that example is actually really important for the ecosystem moving forward because we see that when you have a great founding team that is really strong across product and engineering and you know they are able to continue building the app without the celebrity co-founder, that's something that companies can look to in the future where it really comes down to like who else is on your team will be there if these sort of unfortunate scenarios come up. I look at um, the work that Alexis Ohanian has done after David Dobrik has left the company. You know, he was very clear in issuing a statement to say that he was not aligned with the behavior of Dobrik and that he will continue to be helpful to the rest of the the Dispo team. And it's great to see that that level of commitment to both doing what's right and and saying what's right to maintain, you know, the face of their firm and to really like set a precedent for future celebrity um, founders that like the things that you do behind the scenes or the things that you've done previously can come back and be very harmful to your company And so I think it's good to now we have this example where, you know, investors like Alexis have continued to be helpful. We have the team that is still doing really well and, you know, have an awesome office in LA. And I know a lot of designers and creators and founder friends are really excited about what they're building. And I think over time, the reputation of the company and, you know, the community that they've built will outshine, you know, the early days of having a celebrity co-founder. Um, but I will say, I mean, having Dobrik at the very beginning was helpful as far as acquiring new users. As we kind of also come out of the pandemic here, what are a few trends or focuses when you think about categories that you're very zoned in on? I get asked this a lot um, because we initially started out investing in a lot of tools for remote teams. So early investor in Hopin, early investor in Superpeer, early investor in a, in a lot of new platforms that essentially make it easy to host virtual events, to do online coaching. And for a lot of people, that's been interesting because it's a lot of coaches like personal trainers and therapists and, you know, people that have typically um, met their clients in person have been pulled online. We've actually not invested in any tools for remote teams uh, during the pandemic or now post-pandemic. And the reason for that is I find that the companies that were in market with a product that's ready to be sold, you know, they saw a massive acceleration to their business 
COVID really like changed their trajectory. Like Hopin went from four employees to now 420 employees. And that's been in less than a year. And so, you know, that insane amount of growth um, that was not predicted, but companies really rose to the occasion. Those companies are doing incredibly well. And so ones that are getting started today and building tools for remote teams, they do have a pretty hard cold start problem where it will be very hard to get distribution because there's already a lot of tools in the space and there's a bit of remote tooling fatigue. I still very much care about the space. I'm always on the hunt for things that touch remote work, but I do find that it's uh, the ecosystem has evolved a lot and it's now a very much a crowded space. I'm thinking a lot about basically the, the new definition of neighborhoods and sort of what this new distributed Silicon Valley means from a software standpoint. Like I, I was an investor in a company called Deal, which makes it easy for companies to hire people in all different countries. And so that's been really awesome to see. Like that's one of the hardest challenges today is like we are very pro remote work. And I know that a lot of um, teams are really excited to hire in different countries the complexity in hiring different countries makes it pretty challenging and limiting. And so I'm excited to see what this means for, you know, the average person and what the the day-to-day looks like. Like I am seeing a lot of people that are moving uh, to emerging cities and moving to small towns. And there's just a lot of interesting changes that are happening geographically. And so I think we're going to see some, some really interesting, you know, sort of productivity tools and new ways for people to start a business from anywhere. Cause I'm finding that the, uh, you know, what used to be sort of small side hustles we're now seeing can actually be very um, incredible and life-changing businesses with very little code. And so I'm still thinking about low code, no code as well. And then the third thing, I have been spending a lot more time on vertical specific software. And so, you know, the more time I've spent out in the real world, you know, now going to get your haircuts again, like we're interacting with our neighbors more, we're buying like, you know, I think there's this broader shift to buying local. And so I think there's gonna be a lot of new tools to help support those types of entrepreneurs. And so I have been spending more time on uh, not just uh, startups that are building software for other startups, but startups that are really thinking about industries and verticals and you know, workers that historically have been underserved by tooling. No, that makes sense. And also bringing those workers and companies online. So that makes sense. Yeah. And it's kind of going back to the community example as well. It's been really interesting to see just the lack of community for a lot of these classes of work. You know, when I have been spending more time with companies like Cash Drop or, you know, even looking at the Webflow community, just the type, the creativity and the types of companies that are being started I think we're going to start seeing a lot more um, verticalized communities and verticalized even professional networks where when you're learning a new skill, when you're trying to monetize that skill, there's not really a lot of information online. And quite frankly, blog posts aren't that helpful. What you want is a a peer-to-peer community where you can really have real conversations and bounce ideas off of someone else and someone else who's, you know, a little further along in their journey. And so I think there's going to be a yeah, a whole wave of interesting things that happen from a professional networking standpoint. I was a early investor in a company called Polywork, um, which is disrupting LinkedIn by talking about basically, you know, your whole personality or your whole self. And so Polywork is interesting because 
you know, LinkedIn over the years has become more of a, a platform for recruiters and it's very limiting because it largely looks at someone from the perspective of their resume, which I think resumes are naturally very limiting and only shows some things that you're good at and potentially like the things that you had to do at a company versus the things that you could do or would like to do. And so the interesting thing with Polywork is you can actually, you can add all of these personal attributes. You know, do you have a sub stack? Are you open to speaking on other people's podcasts? Like it's just very built for today and really like highlights different skills and things that you're thinking about or things that you'd like to work on as opposed to being only limited to the things that you've done and the things that are are on your resume. All right, cool. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I love this question. One book that I read prior to starting Work Life was a book called Bowling Alone, which I highly encourage um, people to read. It's been incredibly relevant during the pandemic because essentially the book breaks down the definition of community in American cities in the 50s and in the 60s and, you know, in these previous generations where the American dream was to have a house with a white picket fence, you knew your neighbors, you joined a bowling league, you know, maybe you got involved with the local school and you were, uh, you know, involved in the PTA. A lot of those things have changed. I think specifically for millennials who, you know, many of us went away to college, we moved to a city Um, for our first job. And in a lot of ways, like our community was fundamentally like structured around work where you were friends with your colleagues because you had to stay at the company happy hours. If you don't go to a company happy hour, then you're not contributing to the company culture. You know, the programs and services that we chose were like gyms that were close to the office. And we probably banked downstairs. We got our hair cut down the street. Like the dentist is around the corner everything was fundamentally structured around like this, this office. Bullying alone presents an interesting argument around like community and how Americans have potentially lost sight of, you know, some of the, the goodness that you found in your neighborhood. And the fact that like the people that live close to you, essentially like there's just a really special bond with like neighborhoods and with joining bowling leagues and with these friendships that you can build outside of work. And so I thought that book was really compelling. And it was something that struck me during the pandemic because, you know, as I was working from home, I got to know all of my neighbors, which I had never met before, basically, you know, living in San Francisco, there's the benefit of having lunches and dinners at work. There's also the benefit of something to do every night of the week. Like I was one of the the tech people that went to dinners every single night. And so this was like the first time at, in my adult life where I was home the entire day, had the opportunity to meet my neighbors when they'd be outside for an evening walk, you know, got to the point where the neighbor across the street would call me or, or message me and say like, hey, I'm getting a coffee. Do you want one? Like that would have never happened before. Like I I've never met any of these people. And so finally it was like, oh yeah, my neighbors are coming over for dinner. You know, one neighbor collects record. I have a record player. A neighbor brings over a record. I'm like, this is like so quaint and so different from what we're used to. Because not only did I not know my neighbors, like now I have their phone numbers. Now they're bringing me coffees. They're bringing over records. It's like this whole new world, which essentially like is exactly what Bowling Alone talks about is like, how do we actually find these communities? And can we actually revive some of these old ways of living, which actually like make you pretty happy? I'm like, this is really cool. Like if I need something, I have this whole community around me and they're so close by, like who knew neighborhoods were just so great. 
on the personal front, it's kind of funny because that book impacted me more professionally because it's kind of like a work-life thing. As far as a personal thing, there's an MIT um, white paper that I actually love. It's called Computer as Paintbrush, and it's about technology play and the creative society. And what I love about this white paper, um, what I love about a lot of the work that MIT is doing is the fact that, you know, I think our perception of computers today is largely that computers are a place to work. Like when you're in school, it's where you do your homework. When you are a professional or actually when you're in college, it's like where you take your exams and where you're doing a lot of research. When you're an adult, it's where you're spending like most of your day. Um, you know, even all classes of work is like feel very email dependent or, you know, you're spending a lot of time. If you're a creator, you're, you're spending a lot of time editing and you're in like just a handful of tools. And so it tends to feel like your computer equals work. Computer's paintbrush actually presents a different perspective, which I really like where essentially like computers are actually, it should be a place for playing and for experimenting and for creating and for, you know, spending your free time. Like I, I found actually during the pandemic, I was spending a lot of my time in Figma. It was like Figma is really fun. Now that they have the community, I can just jump in and see like, what are other people building? Who's doing like custom illustrations? Um, you know, I had built this social network in Figma called Stay at Home Valley, which was super fun. It's more of a, you know, a spatial um, universe, like this metaverse where people were adding their, like designers were adding their office. Someone got engaged outside of Dropbox. Like people were just adding all of these fun little illustrations and like adding some of their favorite Bay Area anecdotes to this Figma file. And so I find that like this whole concept of like reprogramming our brains to, you know, think about a computer not as something that's work related or as something that's like one dimensional, it can actually be an amazing tool for creating and for just playing. I love that. That's awesome. I mean, kind of reimagining what the computer is and every time you maybe uh, hook up the laptop, not just thinking, okay, this is where I go, go and do work, um, that I actually have some um, other tools and, um, and actually be that place where you can actually be creative and actually have fun. Bree, this was so much fun. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, I, lo I love going over our time. This has been a really fun conversation. And there you have it. It was amazing having Bree on. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Brianne Kimmel. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 